This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61 the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, as always, and welcome back to the show, Kyler. Thanks for having me. Got a great episode for you with some really interesting topics, as always, uh, here today. Uh, we're going to start off the show by talking about some hot topics. We're going to cover some some uh, trends and interesting topics that are emerging in the tech and digital transformation space, uh, one being... Uh, the lending industry and digital transformation as it relates to data uh, within the uh, lending space. So we'll we'll talk a bit about the role of data in in that vertical. We'll also talk about the five layers of digital transformation uh, based on some uh, documentation or some research that, that Kyler found. Uh, we'll get into uh, chips and the speed of AI computing, which is a really fascinating topic given all the mass amounts of data that organizations are accumulating and now trying to make sense of it and use AI. Uh, obviously, that requires a great amount of computing power. So we'll talk about sort of how chips and technology is evolving to be able to support and keep up with the processing needs of AI and data. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about Bill Gates's role, not in building a software powerhouse like Microsoft, but something different. This is uh, Bill Gates's role in electronic tattoos. And um, I have no idea what you're going to talk about there on that one. So I'm super curious um, on that front. Oh, yeah. I'm curious to know if I can replace my tattoos, my real tattoos with electronic ones. That'd be super cool. If I could. So I guess first, before I ask that question, I'll, I'll wait to hear what you have to say later on uh, before I jump the gun there. Um, so those are our hot topics we'll cover in the opening segment. Uh, later in the show, we're going to have a, a couple guests on. We're going to... Uh, talk about how to optimize business intelligence and um, remind me again, Kyler, who is it that we have that's going to be talking about business intelligence? Yeah. So we have um, Brian Lacaruba, who's one of our, our business intelligence specialists, along with Teresa Richardson, that brings some of the organizational change into more of the process pieces of our overall digital transformation as well. Great. Perfect. Well, that'll that'll be a good uh, segment. Those two have been on the show in the past uh, separately, I believe, in the past, but this will be their first time together on this podcast. And then later in the show, last but not least, we'll have Christy Barber from the Third Stage team uh, here to talk about family-owned businesses and how digital transformation and technology fits within family-owned businesses. And I suppose that discussion isn't just for organizations that are family-owned, but also smaller or even high-growth organizations. A lot of the, the concepts she'll talk about uh, in that conversation, will apply there as well. So before we get to those guests, though, and get to the the, uh, the future segments here, tell us about some of these hot topics. I'm dying to hear what you've got for us on those four hot topics. Yeah, yeah, this is a fun one. We kind of cover all the bases, but I wanted to start with the lending industry as obviously lenders use a massive amount of data and understanding how to optimize that. Um, so in a 2021 study, 
90% of C-level staff at lender companies um, think that data is data or data quality is crucial to any digital transformation. However, only 5% are confident that their company um, or their overall strategies have the actual data that they need to be up to standard. So we talk a lot about kind of fintech and what that looks like um, and technology in that space. And we always know they're kind of a slow adapter for a variety of reasons, whether it's a security issue or just an overall user behavior um, in banking can be a very vulnerable industry for users. So I wanted to share some of the best practices that I found um, for for this specific industry and I wanted to talk about one in general um, and get your feedback on it. So they talked about not just using the data from your warehouse. Um, so the data that you have stored, cleaned, optimized, sparkly, uh, those types of things. Instead, they recommended utilizing other data from CRM systems, from wealth management, those types of things that are untapped and in a different area. So I thought that was a really interesting strategy to utilize those different data points um, outside of that. And I wondered if you could kind of talk us through like that integration point um, and that overall strategy of using different platforms data to build good decision making within an organization. Yeah, and it's a great question because I think a lot of organizations mistakenly think that the only way to get to that future state that you're describing of being able to have full visibility to all the data is to implement a uh, cross-enterprise technology that's unifying all that data. And that certainly is one path you could take. You could, you could put in a new ERP or enterprise-wide technology that'll, that'll pull together that data. But you mentioned one in data warehousing that, that can pull data from multiple sources, multiple systems, and store that data in a way that you can slice and dice it and report it the way you need to. Um, same with business intelligence tools. That's another one that we even more commonly see than data warehousing in that you get a, a product like Power BI or Tableau that is built to pull data from multiple sources and give you enterprise-wide visibility as if you had a single enterprise-wide system. Even if you've got 100 different systems, you can have something like a Power BI or Tableau that's sort of your um, packaged BI and reporting tool that pulls the data from across the board. So the good news is that, you know, there's a few points of good news here. One is that organizations are recognizing the need for uh, more unified data, more visibility into the business. Um, the other good news is that uh, there's multiple options for how you accomplish that, depending on you know what some of your other goals and priorities are as well. Absolutely. And, and that brings me to one of my other hot topics that talks about the overall optimization of that data through artificial intelligence. So Navita Corp on Tuesday announced the issuing of several new chips and technologies that will boost computing speed and increase that artificial intelligent algorithms, stepping up that comp competition. We know a lot of these chips go into things like self-driving cars, that type of automation. And basically, the need for speed in this is to have those technologies be able to kind of forward think important scenarios, like we talked about last week, traffic accidents and self-driving cars. Um, so that's kind of the manifestation of it. Uh, but I wanted to kind of just share what this looks like as far as their um, CEO um, had a quote in their press release, and I wanted to read it to you and, and just get your overall feedback on it because we were just talking about data centers. 
Data centers are becoming AI factories, processing and refining mountains of data to produce intelligence. So is that really the next step? Is, is the AI piece of utilizing all of these data mountains, as he said, and really stepping up to integrate AI and building things that are, you know, robotic or artificial intelligence um, and things like, you know, self-driving cars? Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, robotic, self-driving cars, um, you know, healthcare, those are some examples of industries where I think they're, they're further ahead uh, with their use of AI than, than most industries. Uh, most industries we deal with, quite frankly, are not that far ahead. You know, they're not that far along in the whole AI journey, um, partly because there's just, it, it hasn't hit the mainstream yet. A lot of people are talking about it, but as far as actual use cases and business environments, it just, we're not there yet, unless you work for you know, Facebook or uh, Tesla or one of those organizations that clearly uses a ton of AI. Uh, but I think one of the big inhibitors of it is, in addition to it re- being a relatively new technology, is that most organizations have yet to figure out how to just make sense of what data they have and clean up the data and get it all unified in, in one place and uh, have a central source of truth and all that. And that's just real basic blocking and tackling with the master data management which you have to get there before you can even think about getting to this whole next step or this next utopia of AI and really taking it to another level of now saying, not only do we have clean data, not only do we have visibility to the data and we can report on it and slice and dice it however we want, but now we're going to take it a step further and actually use it to help us make decisions and to help anticipate the future. Um, So I think that um, it's a fascinating area because I think it it's, you're constantly struggling with the chicken and the egg, the organizational readiness and the business readiness for the technology and the data cleanup that comes with that, but also the computing power, as you're alluding to here. I think that's a big limitation for a lot of organizations is they have enough performance issues just trying to run their basic day-to-day operations, let alone the mass amounts of uh, consumption or, or uh, bandwidth that's going to be required to process data for AI. Um, so when we do talk about the manufacturing of these chips, Eric, I know we've seen from our supply chain historically, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic, that when they are being manufactured overseas, that can really um, stop the supply chain or halt the ability to utilize the technology. So this new chip is manufactured in Taiwan. And I wondered if we could get your feedback on if you think we've already passed that hurdle of supply chain issues, or if we'll still have to strategize on how to get this technology to maybe domestic or um, global manufacturers. Hmm. That's a really good question. I I guess I would probably err on the side of caution and, and assume that we're probably still not out of the woods with supply chain issues in general, um, just based on inflation and um, bottlenecks that continue to persist throughout the world. Um, and certainly, you know, you also have to consider the geopolitical implications of tension between China and Taiwan. And you know, does that escalate, especially with war happening throughout the world now in, in Russia and Ukraine? Does that pave the way or, or make it more likely potentially that the China and Taiwan will, will continue to escalate. So that would be my bigger concern is sort of forward looking beyond just today's current supply chain issues. Also, what could future geopolitical issues mean to that? Um, but it's, it's as always a good reminder that you do have to think through your procurement strategies to uh, ensure you've got some diversification. Easier said than done, especially when you're talking about chips. We're not not every country is good at manufacturing chips or has the competencies to do that. 
um, Taiwan and South Korea being, you know, two two common examples of, of chip manufacturers. So um, it's not as easy as it sounds necessarily, but uh, organizations do in general need to be thinking about that as a potential risk for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Um, I know we talked about the furniture industry and their challenges with supply chain just because of the size of their overall product and that need for more domestic manufacturing um, to support their sales pipeline. But I wonder if chips are small enough for packaging that they could kind of not be included in that. Obviously, we know that production has slowed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And now China's numbers currently are actually really high for their zero tolerance COVID policy. So it's more, I think, less of the supply chain and more of the labor. Um, so if anyone is a chip expert out there, reach out to us and, and comment below because we'd, we'd love to hear your feedback. Well, we've also talked about chips as it relates to auto manufacturers mm-hmm. in the past, you know, so a few months ago, you know, last year in this podcast, we, we talked about uh, production shortages in the auto industry as a result of not having the chips that mm-hmm. are required for that. So uh, I would be curious, I don't know the answer to this, yeah. I'd be curious to hear or know if uh, chip shortages are getting better or worse, you know, as it relates to, to autos in general. Absolutely. And of course, and other, other, not just auto manufacturers, but just anyone that you, any product that uses chips, I'll be curious to know if uh, that's, that's alleviated at all. Absolutely. Um, and then switching gears a little bit, I chose this specific research um, because it talked about sandwiches and as a huge sandwich fan, and it was probably around lunchtime, um, I felt like we could consider the layers of digital transformation as um, this article from the Enterprisers Project kind of lays out. Um, it's the Enterprisers Project, if you don't know what it is, is, is more of a community based and it's for CIOs and IT leaders. They, they work on articles and kind of solve problems together. So not a main media source, but I thought it was really interesting. So I'm gonna share with you the layers of digital transformation, Eric, and I'd love your feedback on it and think about it as you know different sandwich pieces. So we have layer one, the bread. I labeled it as um, the infrastructure and hardware layer. Um, layer two, which of course in, in my sandwich would be honey mustard, because I'm a huge honey mustard fan, is the foundation layer. Um, three would be Swiss cheese for me, which is the platform layer. Um, four, which would be probably turkey, um, is the domain application layer. Um, and then five, which is the, the final layer, which would be like LTO for me, lettuce, tomato, onion, is the channel layer. Um, so I, I can get into any layer you may have questions on, Eric, but I thought that was a really interesting way to look at an overall digital transformation project um, in a different lens than we typically hear best practices. Um, so what are your reactions to my sandwich layer? I mean, you can actually talk about the content or you can talk about the food pairings in my, my sandwich, whichever you prefer. <laughs> or both. Or both. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I uh, well, I, I, it, it makes sense for the most part, um, but I guess what, what was the second layer? That was foundation, is that what you said? Or what would you call the second layer? The, the second layer was foundation. So that involves like multi-cloud management, configuration, microservice management, those types of things. Okay, so, okay. 
so I, I was getting that confused with the first one, which is infrastructure. Uh, but that makes more sense now that you clarify that. And then the fifth one, I don't fully understand what that one is. How, how would you describe the fifth? Yeah. One? So the fifth one is called the channel layer. And honestly, that was the hardest one for me to understand too. And that talks about external parts or how the customer can interact with your overall technology. Um, maybe it's an e-commerce platform or a B2B marketplace, um, but it, it transfers from internal stakeholders to external stakeholders. Okay. So that sort of uh, external collaboration or whatever you want to call that. Um, I hadn't heard that one before, uh, you know, as far as it defined that way. Um, but I guess, you know, where my mind goes with this is it, it in many ways is like a sandwich that, it, you know, you're trying to build on a foundation that starts with infrastructure and then and then what they're calling the foundation and then the, the apps and then the, the other pieces of that. Um, but in reality, it's all so intertwined that, you know, like a sandwich, you know, you don't know what necessarily goes on top necessarily with, and, and they're all interrelated. So I think that's the, the other thing, um, you know, just like, I'll try to think of a good sandwich analogy, but there's certain things you, you generally don't pair with, uh, you know, beef and chicken. Typically you don't combine two different kinds of meats or you do, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I feel like I have to have one kind of meat. Um, but it's sort of like that. You, you kind of have to know, um, how the whole picture is going to come together and look at all those layers in conjunction to know, you know, the overall strategy. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway I'd have from that is just having the big picture digital strategy view of that. And that's an excellent observation, as that was my next question, as if you don't eat it as a sandwich, it's not a sandwich. So if you're a crazy person like my sister that actually disassembles the sandwich, what's the point of actually eating a sandwich? I, I can't understand her approach on that. So um, I think unless you are consuming the full sandwich in you know a, a, a full cohesive fashion, that's what is the success to a digital transformation, not each piece that makes up and comprise those layers that we laid out. So very interesting observation there. And next time I promise when I talk about sandwiches, I'll actually bring sandwiches to our our um, podcast here. <laughs> a visual prop, I like it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this brings me to my last piece um, regarding electronic tattoos um, and uh, it's called Chaotic Moon, the biotech-based technique. Uh, that aims to analyze and collect information through the human body. Uh, so this is what Bill Gates is backing and says that it will replace the smartphone um, eventually in being able to actually communicate, send messages, those types of things. So that's more of a futuristic um, capability. But for me, I'm like, are we talking like literal tattoos or figurative tattoos? Um, but no, it is a literal tattoo. So it is in the development um, phase and it will temporarily be placed on the skin with small sensors and trackers that send and receive information through special ink that conducts electricity, which is both terrifying and absolutely fascinating in my opinion. So I had to bring this to the table today uh, because I know that obviously as a cybersecurity expert, sometimes you can be very sensitive to sharing data, which rightfully so. So I wondered what your um, feedback would be to actually tattooing technology and data on your your own body and how you feel like that would, you know, would that be a positive or a negative for your experience? 
Well, I may not be a good person to ask about this just because I'm a, a creature of habit and like most humans, I fear change. And so that, that certainly clouds my, my opinion on this. And, uh, and I tend to, like some people, I, I tend to not be highly trusting of, of the big brotherish uh, approach to technology uh, adoption. Um, so I don't know. My, my knee-jerk reaction is I don't like it. I, I was hoping you were going somewhere that would just give me a solution for updating tattoos I have that are super yeah. faded and, you know, at least yeah. 10 or 15 years old. And yeah. I, I just need to get them touched up. But that, that wasn't at all where you're going with that, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, if I could accomplish that problem, that'd be plenty for me. I don't know that I necessarily need to communicate with people with stuff in my body. It's There's something just empowering to know, like, even though I wear my Apple Watch all the time, and it's probably similar to what they're suggesting for tattoos. It just knowing that I could take this off at any time, even though I never do, I could take it off if I wanted to. Um, that's just good to know. And I like having that, that feeling of empowerment. So I feel like I'm surrendering too much power and too much, uh, I'm boxing myself into a corner if, if I can't take off the device. So I don't, I don't like it myself, but who knows, maybe, uh, maybe 10 years from now, I'll be singing a different tune, laughing at my young self or younger self, I should say for, uh, for mocking it or for, uh, for minimizing its importance. Absolutely. And I wonder, knowing that you are very risk adverse to any sort of healthcare issue and knowing that the probably the phase one approach will be preventing and controlling diseases through this data and improving physical and sports performance. So if you were to do phase one of it, that might be a little bit easier than actually sending messages to you know, your family through your arm. So. <laughs> yeah. If you could, now if you could do like, you were talking about AI earlier, if you could do some sort of uh, predictive analytics or uh, AI type of data um, analysis of what's being collected in your body, and you can somehow anticipate that you're at a high risk of cancer or, um, you know, just picking up health issues proactively, then maybe, then I'll start to listen. Then I'll maybe, okay, that, what's in it for me? It's sort of that whole change management uh, need to de define what's in it for me other than the fact that I get to share data with people. If it helps me, you know, improve my health or helps me live longer, then, then I'd consider it because I am vain enough to think that I should live at least to 100 or 150 years mm -hmm. old. So if that helps me do it, then uh, I'm all for it. But otherwise, all, no, I'm, I'm against it. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we can get Bill on our show and ask him about all the different questions that we have regarding electronic tattoos. But um, with that, I think it's... I'm sure we, that could be easy enough. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure you can... I mean... We have him on next week, maybe? Yeah. He already yeah. called me and asked me if he could be on. I'm like, oh, you know, we got a lot of guests. I'm not sure we can fit you in, but, you know... We'll work yeah. on it. So. We, do get, we do get a lot of requests to be on the show, but I, I just don't remember if Bill Gates was necessarily one of them yet. But <laughs> just give it time. The show will be big enough. And those of you listening can say you were listening in the early days of this podcast before it was big enough for Bill Gates to be on it. So that, that, that'll be our goal. There you but, go. Uh, That's a lofty goal, but I'm, a, I'm here for it. So no problem. <laughs> but speaking of lofty well, goals, um, it's a good time to kind of switch over to two of our most um, talented consultants here that achieve lofty goals with a lot of our um, our client community here. Um, and I'll just add that Brian Lacaruba and Teresa couldn't be more different in just their overall personalities, which is why they make such a really powerhouse team um, for a lot of our, our projects. Um, so I'm excited to share that clip with everybody and kind of unpack it at the end. 
Yeah, sounds great. Well, we'll we'll do that. We'll take a quick break here, and we'll have Brian LaCaruba and Teresa Richardson from the Third Stage team talking about how to optimize business intelligence. And so we'll we'll get into that. That's actually a uh, presentation they gave at our recent Stratosphere uh, event. And so we'll we'll play you that clip and that presentation here. But first, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and all the audio podcast platforms. And I'm excited for our next guests. Um, in addition to Kyler being part of this this video clip, we also have Brian LaCaruba and Teresa Richardson from the Third Stage team. And they're going to talk in this panel discussion about how to optimize business intelligence. So we'll talk about, uh, that seems to be a recurring theme so far in this episode, business intelligence, data, um, AI, all that stuff seems to be a recurring theme. And I think we get to that a little bit in the next segment as well, but we definitely get to it here in this segment. So we'll play you this clip and then we'll unpack it here uh, after we're done. So here's a clip of Kyler, Brian, and Teresa talking about how to optimize business intelligence. So I I'm, I'm, want to start from the beginning, Teresa and Brian, and just ask you how you see business process management enabling or relating to operational excellence. And, and Brian, I'll start with you and, and let uh, Teresa kind of weigh in as well. Sure. So um, it, it's a really critical element. I know we were talking about a little bit in the at the end of the last session. I was watching with uh, Amanda and Christy about the the importance of your business process is really what's driving you as an organization and that um, whatever um, efforts we have on strategy and uh, other things about kind of the big picture of the business, the way it actually gets executed and turns into how you're operating as a business ties into what your business processes are, what your people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis uh, on the ground and not just what you think your business processes are, but what's actually happening out there. So uh, it's a, really critical focus that you have a good understanding of what your processes are, what's what's happening uh, in, in real life, with uh, whether on the shop floor or at, at the people's desks as they're getting work done, and having a clear picture of the reality 
uh, of your business processes because that's going to translate into what your results are for your customers, what your quality is you're able to be able to achieve, uh, everything along those lines. Excellent. Anything to add to that, Teresa, especially from the human component side? Um, I think that that's something that you really bring to the table um, as we have our, our um, holistic type of conversation today. Sure. So in my opinion, operational excellence really has that broader holistic look at the business ecosystem, which I kind of talked about yesterday, touched upon mm -hmm. that. And then the BPM helps to focus when those opportunities are identified, right? So when you're talking about, in my opinion, business process management, that is a tool set. And I know there are a lot of similar uh, methodologies out there that are comparable to BPM. So like you have your uh, Lean Six Sigma, Lean Manufacturing, Shannon Red X theories, PDCA, et cetera, et cetera. But they still have a core process, uh, core steps in the process, right? So designing, you're, you're uh, modeling, you're executing, you're monitoring, and then you're going back and optimize, optimize, optimize. So that's how I see it fitting together. Like the operational excellence is that umbrella type thing. And then the BPM is underneath it. The other things that are underneath it, as Brian mentioned, are the, you know, the changing, the, the change management, the um, leadership component, process, culture, environment, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of, in my opinion, how they fit together and how they complement each other. Um, one really helps to identify where those opportunities exist and the other help to drive and optimize the other, those processes. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, just the marriage between the two is always important to consider. And I know Sam said over here, um, some of my clients say, our processes are different. And then they say, surely everyone does it our way. So definitely <laughs> a, a good piece of feedback there. Um, and then I'll address one question from the audience so that we can do this in real time. Um, Dan asks, in the context of digital transformation, how do you use BI software to develop KPIs and dashboards to align with business metrics? So I'll go to you first on that one, Brian. And I'm just going to tweak the way I, I look at that question too from Dan is that um, I you start with developing the KPIs outside of the BI software. The KPIs are really a business decision about what are the things that matter that you need to measure as what's critical uh, to your business. How are you going to measure your success? How are you going to measure how your processes are doing? So you need to make sure you have a mix of leading and lagging indicators as well, not just the things, your revenue numbers, your um, efficiency numbers, any cost numbers, anything like that. But you also need to have in there things that are assessing how your people are doing, the health of your processes, and making sure you have a well-rounded mix, whether that's using the balanced scorecard or just generally making sure you have a, a set of metrics that are uh, across the board, kind of measuring what you need to know. And then driving from that to uh, developing the dashboards and, and the reporting that you're going to need that align to those business needs. So um, in a digital transformation, if we're talking uh, an ERP implementation, you're often going to have robust reporting capabilities tied to what's inside the ERP that are going to uh, 
uh, aggregate a lot of that information and can give you a lot of uh, data there. But there also may be data you're going to need to be pulling in, and very likely data you'll need from uh, other sources as well. So whether that's pulling a BI tool or, you know, depending on the complexity of the data, being able to uh, aggregate uh, outside of the system uh, as a way to be able to get comprehensive and holistic measures of what you're doing. Excellent. Great answer. Right. That was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can add anything onto that <laughs> other than continuous improvement. So that's, 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 that's a great answer. I can't add anything to that other, other than as your, your targets are hit, your goals are met, continuous improvement is very, very important, right? So where you establish a KPI, you reach your KPI, you manage it, you, you sustain it, you need to get another one, right? Mm -hmm. So point being, this work is, is live work. It's not a one and done. It's a continuous cycle of improvement. But high five to you, man. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Mic drop there. You know? Sure and, did. And, Bam. And, and I, Sam's got a follow-up question there, too, that I think... Uh, feeds right into that. And I see we have a couple other uh, comments mm -hmm. too we can address, but inappropriate KPIs uh, can lead to people doing the wrong things. You know, mm -hmm. if you measure that, and it can be very easy to say, let's measure this thing that's the easiest thing for us to track, even if it's not the most important thing. And then you're driving your behavior, especially if you line up incentives towards that. So Sam, it's a great question because choosing the wrong KPIs is going to uh, incent the wrong behavior. Yeah. So to, to add on to that, um, the decision to monitor and measure a KPI is very important. Um, a lot of times clients ask, you know, what should we monitor? What should we look at? And I always refer them back to what is your process telling you? What is, what is the voice of your, you know, customer, your business performance, uh, your processes? When you do that work and you understand comparatively how all of these different voices um, are sounding or what they're telling you, that's how you can really drill down to the proper KPI. Um, one, also th one thing that I also like to mention is making that KPI rolls up into the overall strategy of the business, um, especially the ones that are like on fire and we need to do it now. Um, those need to be interconnected with each other to make sure that we are meeting the needs of the area, yes, but also speaking to the goals and the strategy of the company, right? You have to make sure that the work you're doing is value added. It has to be um, tied back to that overall um, strategy, like I said. And then it comes down to what depart at the department level for that KPI, how are we performing? Absolutely. And, and when we're talking about BPM efforts, who should we be involving within that conversation from a high level? And Teresa, let's start with you. Since we My started turn. Last time, <laughs> I don't want him to keep one-upping you. You know, My I, I turn, Brian. <laughs> so, so again, I think that that when you look at the 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 work that you're going to do for the business process uh, management or whatever term you want to use, it's important to understand from a higher level what that strategy and that goal looks like, and as well as listening to your processes, your business, et cetera, you have to align it as I just mentioned, because if you're not, you're going to be working towards something, you know, at that level, they might not see or understand as a value added activity. So this activity is, it, it's, it's uh, an investment. It is something that they're willing to, you know, put some capital on. So we have to make sure that we, we show them that return 
by speaking directly to that overall strategy. Absolutely. Anything to add, Brian? Yeah, and I would just say as far as the people who are involved, it's really important to, to get a look at it from a broad perspective and a, and a deep perspective. The comments earlier, you know, it's important to know what's actually happening on the ground. You don't just want to have the managers uh, in sessions talking about how they designed the process 10 years ago. That may be how it yeah. works, but uh, that's you need to make sure you're getting input from people who are actually um, working on processes. And what's important too is making sure that you are uh, getting cross-functional discussion going. That's usually a big part of where you're gonna see problems in the processes is handoff. So we often start with a client and get kind of a bird's eye view of their processes and people, when they wanna set up workshops with us when we start an engagement, it often is let's start with this department and we'll talk to this department and this department, but then you're missing the whole part of where they work together and where you may see challenges because something that's optimized for the first group and then for who they hand it off to downstream, they optimize what they're doing, but in between yeah. there's a lot of gaps. So it's it's really critical to make sure you're you're getting people talking to each other. Absolutely. Um, so I, I want to just add to that. Um, when you're selecting that KPI and you get the direction, you have the data to prove it. You just have to say, have the data to prove it, right? Then to Brian's point, making sure that the people that you select to uh, understand what those opportunities are. I personally use um, a cross-functional uh, work stream diagram to understand the, the interconnectedness between all of the different stakeholders in the group. Um, it, it's really important to make sure that everyone has a, a free conversation. You know, we all need to understand what's going on. Tell me like it is, you know, put everything on the table so we can figure it out. I can't tell you how important that is. Usually when, you know, Brian and I have had this discussion 10,000 times, you know, you, you go to a client, and you say, hey, uh, for your calibration process, who are your major stakeholders, right? Okay, well, you tell me three people. And then after Brian and I kind of have the conversation, ask those probing questions, it goes from three to five to eight different stakeholders. You know, that's when the fun starts and you do the work and people think my process is this big and now it's like I can't even have enough room on the screen to show you where my hands are. But that's how big their processes are. And then when you show them, hey, this is what your process looks like. They see the pain points. They see the issues. They see how convoluted it is. And it just blows their mind. That's kind of fun for me. I don't know if it's in a, a weird way, but it just it goes to show you like you have to have the work. You got to do the work. You got to ask the questions. You have to be willing to tell me why this you know, process has 20 different workarounds that they know, but they don't want to know about. And then let's fix it. Well, Absolutely. Teresa, I don't consider that weird fun. I mean, you and I, right after we get off this call, are jumping on with a client to have exactly that type of conversation to blow out a process. It's going to be awesome. That's excellent. Yeah, so important to have that cross-functional understanding, it sounds like. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Brian, Teresa, and Kyler talking about how to optimize business intelligence. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe and provide comments below. Uh, we're going to cut back to the conversation here with Brian, Teresa, and Kyler talking about how to optimize business intelligence. So let's go to an, another audience question here. We're getting some great questions, so I'm going to start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us which ERPs have strong BPM workflow engines as a part of the software to automate tasks? such as sending automatic emails, texts, for approving purchase orders, et cetera. Let's go to Brian yeah. first. Yeah, so it's an interesting dynamic in this because workflow has become a, a basic expectation within ERP systems, but you also do see that some um, have pretty basic workflow set up and, and you have others that uh, build out in a more robust way or that are gonna give you some add-ons that can do that. But you know, part of what I wanna address in this too is, uh, from my perspective, before I was in the ERP world, I actually spent more time in the BPM system. <clears throat> so working with uh, technologies that were built specifically to uh, develop custom processes and build out really enhanced uh, workflow capabilities along those lines. So I, I think the key thing there too is really understanding uh, for any client, like what is the what is the depth of workflow that you really need? And to the point of uh, one other comment we had in the chat earlier, like how different are some of those processes that you're, you're doing? Most most companies do think what they're doing is pretty different, and then it takes digging into it to understand what parts of what they do are different. Because usually there's something, but uh, it, it's understanding what parts can really fit into very um, common workflows uh, that are used, or are do you have some really unique needs within your business that are going to drive you towards needing um, something really custom for you. So I don't want to really get into too much of differentiating which systems as much as making sure you kind of have an understanding of how to identify what your needs are and tailor your decisions to that. Great. Anything to add to that? Okay. No, that was good. That's <laughs> perfect. I'm going to have to not be on so many of these as a partner with you, man. This is like, no, I'm only yeah. joking. You're awesome. You're, it's, you're great. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, Thanks. if he wasn't so busy doing all the clients, he's so highly requested, we'd always have him on our marketing materials because he is incredibly articulate, especially in these complicated type of, of processes. Um, so another audience question here, what is the difference between measures, metrics, and KPIs? I would say that probably is the same thing as KPIs, but I wanted to ask the experts um, and maybe we can spin that into, you know, establishing those KPIs on what level of the organization. Okay. Yeah. So yes, I, I do agree that they are very similar. And like I, I mentioned earlier, in my opinion, you know, even when you look at BPI, that is one version of a methodology tool, you know, a toolbox or framework. So it depends, honestly, in my opinion, I, I use KPIs all the time. Uh, the metrics KPI, those are interchangeable for me. Um, and then when you talk about how do you measure them or where do you measure them? Um, when I used to work uh, for the big three, the automotive, 
big three, we always had to measure a KPI from that Hoshin Conry look, right? It's very high level and it kind of goes down. So yes, I'm tracking this specific metric, but it's going to be broken out differently on every department or every team to see how my piece of the operation contributes to that performance for that metric, which rolls up to that overall KPI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And then I'm just going to keep pumping these audience questions. We're kind of sure. jumping all over the place, but I feel like, you know, addressing these questions and, and, you know, really getting to what the core of what our audience wants to hear. So I like this question because I think it's super important to um, address. How soon in the implementation process do you map the business processes? Yeah, and thanks, yeah. thanks for that question, Jean. Great um, question. It is yeah. that's a great <laughs> question. So in my opinion, it's just like change management. You need to do it as soon as you hear about it. So to me, uh, you know, I usually am brought in like midway um, or when things are not adding up, it's best, it's be, it's it's a best better use of time if you bring us in early so we can understand, you know, your current state, what are your issues, what are your, you know, what are your requirements, what are your pain points? So when we understand what that landscape looks like, it helps the vendor, whoever we're working with, understand that client. So I, I just had this conversation yesterday. You can't put you know, a, a square peg out of the box into a round hole and expect it to work. It, it's not going to work. So when you have that crosswalk of, okay, here's my, my current state process now. These are all the issues, pain points, et cetera. Here's the vendor software. This is what we're offering. That transition state is where a lot of a lot of the translation gets lost. And then the customer is frustrated. So, you know, I told you this is an issue for me, but I see the demonstration or I see the workshop. I'm not seeing how these things are connected. But when the vendor has that information, they can directly relay it back to the client during those sessions. So that light bulb goes off like, oh, okay. That was my pain point on that workflow in this area. You just demonstrated to me how it's going to be solved. And that way you have a level of comfort from the client of understanding buy-in, right? Adaptability and usage that you would not have had you not done that work earlier. But, you know, if you bring us in and it's midway, it's still a, a worthwhile venture because now we're going to have a solution to your, to your pain. Yeah, totally. It's at, at whatever point you're talking about it, you should be mapping your processes, um, the implementation in many ways. Uh, and Gene, I know you, you know this from having worked with you uh, on this of getting uh, some work done in your processes early on. But I think what's important to think about, too, is um, the, the depth of how much you go into different processes can vary based on where you're at and on the need to keep it moving. So you may not need to go into every process at immense levels of detail up front. In fact, you don't want to go into too much detail uh, on as you're in the early stages of figuring things out. So you're going to get progressively deeper as you get into the process and, uh, and keep iterating that and, and building a deeper understanding of what you're trying to get to. Excellent. Great answers. The audience agrees as well. Um, five stars, five out of five. <laughs> so I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> I'd love for you guys to share a specific example from your experience on how operational 
excellence um, can be supported by technology. So we'd love to hear kind of a, a case study piece of that. So let's start with you, Brian. Sure. So, uh, and it's interesting too, the ex example I'll, I'll start with is one that has kind of moved from varying degrees of maturity of technology as well mm -hmm. too. So uh, when I was working in a retirement services organization, uh, we had a very complicated process for uh, onboarding new retirement plans. It would take months to go through it. Sometimes it could be a year if it was really complicated. And there is kind of a playbook and a standard set of tasks around that, but it's very adaptable based on what the needs are, what the organization has, and, and what they're trying to do. And um, this was managed through spreadsheets and Word docs when I started getting involved in that. And um, we actually had a uh, tried to implement a BPM system that wasn't as tailored to the needs of, of what they required and ended up not using it for some portions of it, but they ended up going with a Microsoft InfoPath solution, which helped uh, bridge some of the gaps. And um, it, it was more of a business-driven technology than an enterprise-level technology, but it helped uh, help meet some of the needs and really define out some of what the organization needed. And you were seeing it on some of the KPIs around implementation of uh, and onboarding of the retirement plans. And that moved then towards um, adopting a, um, a stronger BPM solution, more of an enterprise technology uh, that was used to replace uh, those uh, InfoPath workflows and, and data point, database behind it that were being used as a way of really uh, managing it more robustly, having as part of kind of your IT organization, having uh, business continuity, backups, that type of thing too, as you implement an enterprise technology as well as some more robust integration capabilities and other things in the organization. So there was an example where implementing um, the most complex technology that could meet all the needs wasn't necessarily the answer right away because there were so many variables in the process that even trying to map them out, we, we hadn't figured out some of it. We were really building that out through the um, intermediate step of InfoPath. Absolutely. What about you, Teresa? What's your experience kind of within that area? Um, well, again, so we'll, we'll repeat that primary question once again. I got all wrapped up in what Brian was saying. <laughs> See, Brian, really back to my yeah. years of experience. Yeah, I think what, what um, I was asking is just for a specific case study or some experience you've had on how technology can enable that operational excellence that's supported by those BPM efforts. So, yeah, a lot of times when, for me, when I'm rolling out like the specific activity, and this is after the, the vendor or after the client has selected a vendor, right? Um, understanding, again, how that technology is work and speaking to the actual performance of the work, it, it's, it's important for me. So for example, uh, one of the hospitals that I used to work for, um, they selected the Epic system, right? So you have this major system that they're trying to implement to understand how it's going to work in every one of the, the different departments across the hospital. Well, again, it, it wasn't helpful just by rolling out that, you know, out of the box technology it kind of created a, a stall in the uh, timeline. So what we had to do is we had to go back and look at those processes by department. Actually, it was by hospital, by department to understand how this information is going to work. And what we discovered was that that crosswalk between what we were doing now and what the system offered, it wasn't there. 
it wasn't there at all. So we had to go back to the Epic system to say, hey, this is, we need to do more customization. We need to do more training. We need to do more, you know, work on how these things are going to connect with the teams because it's not happening. So that that was a lot of work that we had to do, but it was well, very well worth it. And by using the BPM and the operational excellence, we can identify those opportunities and go back to the vendor to say, hey, this is what we need. And it, and it ended up working out. So we did it at one hospital that got merged with two other systems. So we took mm-hmm. that process and merged it across, I think it was like 16 hospitals. Wow. Wow. Definitely. Yes. A, yeah, a it was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, I, but again, I think it, it speaks back to really understanding from that op X perspective, what's going on. You know, yeah, I have my mm-hmm. technology. Yes, I do. But but how is it going to fit within my business ecosystem? How, how mm-hmm. am I going to be able to uh, optimally and, and efficiently roll all of this out to, you know, 16 different hospitals and how many departments and how many shifts of how many people that are using the system? So, yeah, absolutely. And especially something so critical as healthcare. Yeah, well, you know, that that's something that that certainly needs a lot of attention and, and just a lot of obviously process management. So I'll give you a, a very simple uh, example of, of that work. Um, when you first roll out that, that um, system, mm-hmm. for example, in the ER, they had the, the physician filling out all this information mm-hmm. on the screen. Well, we did not see a high level of adoption or usage. There was a lot of defect, a lot of calls coming in, a lot of tickets being uh, submitted, and we didn't understand why. So when we took the time from our process, like I was the operational excellence uh, consultant on that, to go and actually look to see what was happening, mm-hmm. the physician had his back turned to the, to the patient to fill all this information out. That's not what doctors do. That's that's not what they do. They're supposed to help the patient in the bed and speak to them directly. So right. by understanding from an operational excellence position and a, a, a process um, investigation, I looked to see what was going on. I interviewed people that I understood, okay, we cannot have the physician with the back turned. He has to be, or she has to be directly speaking to the patient and, and comforting the patient and understanding what's going on. So as as a result of that, we had to get either one of those. And this is I, I'm not going to date myself, but this is back in the day. We had, we had to get like little tablets or even a scribe to do the work for the doctor or get that get that information into the system for the uh, for for the, the data gathering piece. So again. When you look at what's going on and how it's performing, you have to dig in. And we would never have known that had I not done that. It would right. have just been, okay, exactly. the physicians aren't using this and it doesn't work. Well, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> let's figure it yeah. out. Yeah, the experience and really unpacking that. And I think this is a good question from our audience to kind of go along with that. Um, when implementing BPM, how much time do you typically spend on the as-is process Versus assuming that workflows are inadequate in the old system and moving right to the to be. So kind of current state versus future state. How what's the balance there? So are you saying current state maps that I've had in my system for a while versus current state 
as it's performing right now. So that, cause that's like two different things. Like I'll have my maps in my drawer versus what people are really doing. Yeah. And, and Dan, you can definitely elaborate, but I think what we're saying is how do you, how much time should you spend analyzing a process that you know is broken as opposed to repivoting and focus on the strategy or the future state that you want it to be? What's the balance there? And Brian, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously it's going to vary a lot based on an individual organization and what their needs are. Um, I would hesitate to ever completely short circuit the as is process because you need to, as Teresa's talked about, really diagnose why things are broken. And there may be assumptions that you're making in there um, about what you do, what your customers need, what the needs of the process are that could be uh, wrong if you don't have a, enough of an understanding. But you, there are there's limits to how deep you necessarily need to go on current state, particularly in certain areas if they are uh, pretty vanilla for you as an organization, you know, if your finance, financial processes are not um, anything really unique to you as a business, you need to have a baseline understanding of what they are in current state, but you don't need to uh, build out a massive amount of detail on those and, and you'll want to move mm. towards uh, kind of where you're trying to get to. But the key thing to understand here and sorry, Teresa stealing your thunder on this one, but it's going to be um, helping to adapt to the change because knowing what mm. you're doing in the current state uh, even if you know where you want to get to, if you don't know what it's going to take to move your people to those future state processes, yeah. um, you're going to have a challenge there. Yeah. So in my opinion, um, I think if you spend more time understanding the pain points, the issues and the requirements of that as is current state is a better use of time than digging down to a detailed level that it really won't matter, right? We understand these. this process is broken. That's why you call us. That's why you call third stage to help and understand where those opportunities are. The process is, is the process. This is how it's operating. But why is it not operating to the way it was designed? To me, that's more value added work um, to give to the client as well as to collaborate with the vendor to show them how this new system um, or this new model is going to alleviate their issues. Excellent. And I think that that is so important and it really kind of ties nicely to Andy's question over here is whose responsibility is it to bring up the need for OCM, organizational change management, and when, question mark. So let's start with you, Brian, just to like mix it up a little bit. Mix it up. <laughs> Let's see what you have to say, Brian. I'm only joking. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's anyone's responsibility who can bring it up. The question is going to be who can really make it happen and bring about the mm -hmm. practices of OCM uh, that are needed on a project. So, uh, but I, I think that's really really important. You may be in an organization where people don't really think of uh, OCM as a critical need, and uh, mm -hmm. if you're someone who does understand that need, it's good to use whatever levers of influence you have to try to to try to draw that out and to make an awareness within the organization uh, of the need for that. But you, you really need to be starting with OCM from, from the beginning, much as you're starting looking at your processes at the beginning before you figure out your software, before you figure out um, directionally exactly where you're going to go, you need to be thinking about uh, the activities of how you're going to support the change, how you're going to bring in the right people who are going to need to be a part of that and, uh, and do that early and, and work to 
work to introduce it. And you know, for some organizations, they they may not adopt a full OCM program. And if that's not what they're comfortable with, and they can't get their leaders by, and you still want to take on whatever activities you can as as part of that. Excellent, Teresa. To add to that. Yes. How much time do we have? Yeah, I was just about to say, you, we're going to have to put a time. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I know. Uh, so honestly, that was a great answer as well. You, like anyone should be able to bring that up, but do they is the question. A lot mm -hmm. of times when I'm on projects uh, that have to deal with OCM, I always ask the question, you know, why hasn't the change worked for you before? Tell me why. And usually when I ask that question, everyone starts giving me reasons why it doesn't or why it hasn't stuck. And then they understand the need for what we do. So if you've tried this five times and it never gained traction, why is that? What happened? Who is involved? A lot of crickets go on, you know, but <laughs> it starts to help them generate some thought about, okay, maybe the approach we took from the last five times it needs to be addressed, right? Mm -hmm. And then once those conversations start, it really becomes a, a piece of the conversation for the leadership to say, yep, okay, we didn't do this before. Usually it starts from the ground up, in my opinion, or mid-level managers, and then it kind of bubbles up to senior leadership. Because if, if you've tried an initiative five times, what's going to be the differentiator for the six? Because we can't keep continually doing this. You lose buy-in, you lose support you create more fear in the organization etc cetera, etc cetera. so in my opinion anybody should bring it up as brian said but then the next step is let's talk about why it hasn't worked before mm -hmm. absolutely i think i think understanding that activation point you know who is the, the decision maker the creator of change and do they understand you know the importance of it and a lot of times that can be kind of a coach up scenario absolutely you know, helping see the value um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Brian, Teresa, and Kyler talking about how to optimize business intelligence. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. Be sure to subscribe and provide comments below. Uh, we're going to cut back to the conversation here with Brian, Teresa, and Kyler talking about how to optimize business intelligence. And then that kind of brings me to my next question over here is when we're talking about BPM or, or operational excellence, should that be from the top down or from the bottom up as far as effort? 
Maybe we'll go to you first, Brian, on oh. that one. Oh, well, no, oh, never mind. No, I'm only joking. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. No, I mean, I can talk about this all day. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> yeah, well, I like with every answer, I'll always uh, hedge on the fact it really depends on the organization and kind of mm -hmm. what the needs are and how they operate culturally. But um, it, it's important, let's let's say this, if, if, if you're doing something from the top down and driving that effort, it's got to really uh, engage the people from the bottom up in a way that is um, not just paying lip service to to the role in that, but recognizing that they're the people that are uh, making things happen uh, and that they're the ones who understand the reality of what's being experienced on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And often, if asked the right questions, it's people on the bottom who can give you um, that should use the bottom in, in a way that people people who are actually performing the day to day who sure. can yeah who can who can um, who can come to the right answers and sometimes just need to facilitate the right questions and bring the right people along. Uh, from the flip side, though, from the bottom up, sometimes there may not be an organizational uh, push uh, towards this type of improvement. And it doesn't mean it can't start from uh, from the bottom up to really um, implement some small wins, do something at uh, even as much as I talked about being cross-functional before, if you can start something at a mm -hmm. department level and show some wins that way and show a, mm -hmm. a discipline that you want to roll out within the organization, that can build some momentum to start to grow things uh, at, a, at a broader level. Yep. So just to add on that, um, if you do start from that perspective, senior leadership, CEO, whom, whomever, they like wins, right? They like to mm -hmm. see proof is in the pudding. Um, but if you're asking how can this be supported um, across an organization, it's definitely going to have to start from the top because they're the one that that's controlling capital and the activity of a business, right? Mm -hmm. And again, how does it align to my strategic plan? How does this work across the organization so I can turn around and show an ROI on the efforts that we've actually been able to achieve and the results we've been able to achieve? So, you know, when you when you have work like this, again, and if you're able to reach a, a result, a positive uh, trend or meeting a goal, that, that will get a lot of attention for you, mm -hmm. right? So you have to show the benefit, the value add, and the payback. Once you do, the support has to come from the top to get that capital released and the support from all of the different levels of the organization. And to build on that, where is the user adoption strategy built within a digital transformation? And how do you ensure that that's something that is an investment within the overall process? Because obviously we can all have systems, but if nobody uses them or doesn't understand how to use them, then they're probably not that effective, I would assume. Um, oh, 100%. <laughs> so do you, who wants to elaborate on that? I need a buzzer for you guys. Like I know, <laughs> I know. I can, I can take it or, you know, I can add on to Brian. I think we, we definitely have, you know, the same thought here. So the question is, why do we have a low user adoption rate? The question is why, why, why did, what did we not do to help support the team? And that goes back to understanding their pains from the very beginning of that current state. What's why, why, what are your issues? What are your requirements? What do you need? What is your pain? And right then and there you do two things. You capture your, your performance or your current state, but you also create that buy-in 
that willingness to own and partner with you to help make these changes impactful. When you start building that buy-in, the trust, the cooperation, the ownership, right? The accountability, I'm giving that to you. So now you find it as a worthwhile activity to actually use the system. But if I come to you and say, hey, we did all this work, let you know uh, next week we're going to turn the switch on and you're going to use this. You're like, what are you talking about? Why, why am I going to use this? What does this benefit me? How, how, did, how does my issue with this uh, get fixed? I don't know what's going on. So in my opinion, you have to go right to the beginning and you have to start the work of not just understanding your, your systems and your, your business ecosystem, your processes, performance, but you have to create the buy in the trust the accountability and ownership from the people who are going to use it. And then you use KPIs to measure. And yeah, thorough, very thorough answer, Teresa. And no, you, you do a great job of bringing this in with our clients of tying all of these pieces together. And I, the only thing I want to add to this is just uh, how it ties into a common misconception of what mm -hmm. we deal with up front a lot from mm -hmm. our clients, which is thinking that they hear, well, people don't like the current systems. They're going to be excited for this no matter what happens. And just uh, we, we've got, we're not going to have any resistance because people are so ready to get rid of this piece of junk that we're using right now. And uh, I mean, it's a good thing that people are ready for that, but they're, mm -hmm. all those things Teresa was talking about, those are, are things you need to do to connect it to people. Even people who are ready to get rid of the system that they're on now, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to be happy for whatever it is you're changing to without being really um, complete about how you're looking at that change. Man, that's that's another can of another topic for another day. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, like you know, when you have business processes that are broken, um, but you're somehow able to keep your head above water, that's because people have put a lot of time, energy, and resources into creating workarounds, right? Mm -hmm. So if I don't ask you these questions, if I don't establish a connection and relationship with you, if I can't gain your trust in what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not going to be able to break that person who spent the last 10 years refining these workarounds because guess what? I tried the system you, you, you gave to us. It didn't work. You know, maybe I got bit a couple times cause I tried and I couldn't do it. So now I have this refined model that I'm using to get everything I need. So why mm -hmm. am I giving that up? Those are the kind of, of, of pitfalls that people experience when, you don't start soon enough or the activities aren't involving the people who are actually using the system. Absolutely. I think that that's oh, so important in just really evaluating that human aspect. I'm curious if you could give us your feedback. It seems as though from a business process management standpoint, it can be difficult to have the awareness to be able to evaluate your own business's systems. Is is that something that you would recommend reaching out to a third party or a specialist in that sort of scenario, just so that you can kind of garner all the insights and optimization opportunities? Yes. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. I was like, yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that was, I should have waited till you were finished, but I'm speaking. No, out. no, no, no. I'm glad that you're, you're thinking excited. about the buzzer that. Uh... <laughs> yes. I'm going to buzz you. Yeah, that's Jeopardy. Awesome. We could get a buzzer and do like family feud style answer. <laughs> yeah. That would be fun. Oh my yeah, gosh. 
I so made I a third to. stage Jeopardy. So next time, <laughs> folks, we're going for it. Um, uh, go ahead, Brian. Well, I'll let you. Yeah. Well, let's start with you, Brian. Just obviously, this is kind of your wheelhouse. This is what you do for businesses, your specialty. And I just mm -hmm. am, I'm wondering from that perspective, do you ever kind of get that laser focus on like this part of the business is broken? but it's actually not that part of the business is broken. It's the, the piece that comes before it. And how do you address that? Yeah, and I mean, I'll give maybe the surprising part of the answer up, for, mm -hmm. up front, which is it doesn't necessarily need to be someone independent, but it does need mm -hmm. to be someone who has uh, the understanding and the discipline to be able to look really across your business as a whole. So worked with organizations who do have robust process management capabilities and teams and people um, that 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 was the role I came from before I came to third stage, for example, people who uh, ha have um, a team and a discipline and a process towards doing this throughout the organization. And if you have that established and it's been effective and it's proven results and you, you can do that in the organization, that may be a part of the journey you can do yourself. But if you don't have that as a strong organizational discipline, you're going to need some help to build that out. And building that out might mean helping to develop a, a function like that within your team. Um, but it, it's something that it often can work best by having uh, a team of people who ha are skilled and have experience at doing this to help you through that journey and to um, hopefully not do this just as a one-time thing either, but to really build out an organizational practice towards looking at and maintaining your processes and not just looking at them at the time that you're rolling out a new technology. Anything to add to that, Teresa? You know the answer is yes, I do. <laughs> so for me, um, I think having another set of eyes is helpful mm -hmm. to look at a process. Um, many times when I walk into an organization and I start I start partnering with people, um, you have the the individuals that say, "Yeah, we tried this before, it didn't work," or you have the ones that have put a lot of time and an effort into a process or into something then they don't they hold the the cards very close to their chest so when i say hey you know what i understand you i hear you you're the expert at what you do i'm the expert at what i do let's partner and figure it out because i'll ask questions that maybe they they already you know they know about but they're not thinking about because they see it every day they experience it every day and maybe they're used to that pain and it's not really an issue until someone, mm -hmm. um, for instance, like myself from third stage comes in and asks that question and asks some probe, you know, some additional probing and like, oh my gosh, you're right. Maybe it is the process before me. Maybe mm -hmm. I have just become, you know, uh, settled on the fact that I had to work around. It's really not a problem anymore, but you know what? It is a problem. So let's go investigate that. Sometimes when you're so close to a process or you have a lot of time um, invested into something, it's kind of hard to see, you know, the forest through the trees is if, if that's, I forgot if that's the right way to say it. But again, if, if you have that extra set of eyes that, you know, agnostic set, like, hey, I'm just asking questions, things come out of that conversation that can really help an organization identify what those other uh burning opportunities would be you don't want to waste time you know i'm a i'm a big i'm a big uh, opponent of wasting time i don't want to do it so let's figure it out yeah i think it's kind of like that house metaphor that if you follow um, a lot of our podcasts or conversations i have with eric 
you know, could I put a roof on a house? I mean, probably, but do, is that my everyday job? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So just investing in that efficiency and Mm -hmm. that expertise. I think a lot of times people have this ownership and it almost comes with a level of shame. Like this is my business, right? Yeah. So I know everything that happens here and just opening up that conversation and that vulnerability to say, Mm -hmm. maybe I should have somebody else come on here and and take a look at my roof, even though it's my house. Okay. Thank you, Brian and Teresa and Kyler. Thanks for that presentation and that discussion around business intelligence. A lot of good stuff there. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and unpack some of that in a bit more. In the meantime, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61. We just had Brian, Teresa, and Kyler on the show talking about business intelligence and how to optimize business intelligence. What were some of your takeaways after hosting that discussion, Kyler? One of my favorite actual panel discussions from our Digital Stratosphere 2022, and just a reminder to our audience, if you'd like to see the full virtual conference, you can go to stratosphere2022.com and register. It's free and you can see all of the recordings. Um, So just a reminder there. But my favorite part about um, Teresa and Brian LaCaruba is if anyone has heard Teresa on our podcast, she specializes in company culture and organizational change management, but also has a very detailed technical processing background um, for technology as well. And Brian Lakaruba is one of our most talented business process experts. And you hear him sometimes, but you can always tell the consultants here at Third Stage that are most popular with our clients because they're rarely on our podcast <laughs> because I have to find, you know, time to uh, get you know, with them as far as the client bandwidth they have. But I thought that they did such a great job of talking not only through the the technical piece of business process mapping, um, but also understanding the cross-functional needs of communications between departments um, and really understanding how each department interacts with the new technology or will interact with the new technology before building out that process, which isn't something a lot of times we hear on more of the technical side of the importance of that that cross-functional collaboration. Yeah, it's very, very true. Um, and it's such an important part of, of how you better leverage business intelligence, sort of like what we were talking about before with AI. Um, the AI tools and technologies are out there. The BI tools and technologies are out there. And that's not really the problem. The problem is that most organizations don't think cross-functionally. They don't have clear line of sight to their data. The data is not clean. Um, it's not being managed appropriately. They don't have good uh, 
master data management processes and governance in place. So you have all these problems that are sort of affecting or undermining the, the core foundation of good business intelligence or good AI or whatever the data output might be. Absolutely. And I like when they kind of talked about the, they touched on those emerging technologies, however, really drove home that if your processes and people are not ready or even formulated for that matter, just even backing up a step before readiness, um, if they're not understood from conception to completion, there's no point in bringing in um something like AI, because then you'll just be sitting on a pile of technical debt and a system that isn't working because it's not um, functionally ready because that foundation isn't built. So I thought that was a really great part of saying, yeah, these technologies are super cool, right? And hopefully in the future, all of our business partners will be ready to integrate them. But without fully understanding the processes, then there's no point in you know looking at these shiny technologies, even if vendors demo them. Yeah, and it's, a, it's also a good reminder, a good uh, reinforcement of the fact that technology is changing a lot faster than organizations can. And so that divide between where organizations are today and where technology is headed now, that divide just keeps getting bigger. And so AI is a, good, a great example because it's so powerful, it can do so much, but yet so many organizations can't get clear data just on their work in progress on the shop floor or just even what their monthly P&L is. It takes them, you know, 20 days to close the books or whatever. You know, if you can't get that core basic stuff in place, you're certainly not going to be able to ad- adapt to, to AI until you get that stuff cleaned up and you get that foundation in place as you, as you talked about. But it's just a good reminder. You've got to, you can always look to the future, look ahead, kind of where you want to get to that future state. But you also have to be realistic about where you are today and not bite off more than you can chew and maybe, you know, learn to, learn to, what's the saying, learn to crawl before you run or learn to walk before you run or whatever the saying is. You want to take baby steps first and then, and then run later, whatever the cliche is. I know I'm butchering it, but hopefully get the idea. No, I think it's both important to walk and crawl before you attempt to run. So that makes a lot of sense. So, um, and I, I think the last thing, you know, I'll, I'll touch on is we have a lot of, um, software vendors that join these events. And it's always interesting to see when Teresa and Brian are addressing their comments of, you know, what a software, what cloud can bring to business processes. And, and they kind of, um, they don't like, you know, throw cold water on them, but they do back it up to say, remember that as an organization, the process is yours. It's not a technology that comes in. If you don't have ownership over those processes and you kind of give that up to a different technology, then your business objectives are completely irrelevant because you sacrificed your overall ownership of the project. So that's always an interesting dynamic um, to talk through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a, it, and it, 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 another good reminder that you have all these moving parts that have to fit together. Back to your sandwich analogy in the, the Hot Topic opening segment, you, you have to have all the layers aligned. You, you know, it has to make sense for you as an organization. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's very interesting kind of segue from these 
processes into our conversation or my conversation with Christy, because that can be a very challenging, um, scalable growth model for specifically family-owned businesses that really have experienced a high volume of growth and have different generations involved in their overall community. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'll be a good conversation. And she's a great, um, reliable source of discussion around family owned business. Cause that's how she grew up was in, was in a family owned business in Southern California. And, uh, so she has a unique perspective, not just as a consultant, but just someone that grew up in that, in that environment. So that'll be an interesting conversation. So we'll bring back Christy Barbara, who's been on the show before. And typically she's on here talking about small business stuff and, uh, as is the case in past uh, appearances on the show, she'll be talking about small business type stuff again today with with family owned businesses. Although I suppose family businesses don't necessarily need to be small, but they tend to be smaller typically. Um, so we'll talk about digital transformation and technology at family owned businesses when we come back uh, with Christy Barber. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Uh, we are active in all the social media platforms, or at least all the major ones. Be sure to check us out there for daily content related to digital transformation. And of course, subscribe to this uh, podcast if you haven't already, please. Uh, it'd be a good way to provide um, additional best practices to you every week. Uh, this new podcast comes out every every Wednesday. Um, and our next guest I'm excited for, Christy Barber, who's been on the show a number of different times in different settings, uh, sometimes in direct interviews on the show, other times playing clips from other events. And in this case, we're going to be um, actually playing a clip of Kyler's interview with Christy talking about digital transformation and technology at family-owned businesses. So we'll cut it over to you, Kyler and Christy. Today, we are going to dive into the inner workings of family business. So both technology and drama is on the menu for today. Um, so Christy, thank you so much for being here, first of all. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so Christy has a unique background, not only as our small business um, specialist, she's also a very accomplished entrepreneur and 
um, a fifth generation family business. Is that right? No, I am fourth generation. Fourth. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. she has lots of personal and professional experience and helping family run businesses um, to implement or understand their overall technology. Um, so with that, Christy, can you just give us a, a baseline definition of what a family business looks like? Because I assume it might come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Yeah, there's some that are small, you know, maybe it's just a handful, you know, under 10 family members, mm -hmm. you have other companies that are big, big, and they may have, you know, 20, 30. I highly doubt you probably have a family business of more than 100. But you never know, maybe yeah. there's <laughs> really large companies out there. And I know there was one we worked with a couple years ago, and they were close to about 50 employees. And it was uh, almost, I would say 99% family owned. Wow, that's pretty yeah, incredible. Pretty cool. So what kind of dynamic does that look like from an overall alignment? As we know that executive alignment, alignment just in general is a key strategy to any successful digital transformation. So what does that look like from a family business perspective? It's different because you have, like it's different levels of ownership. So it may be, you're the past generation and you're the one that still holds the keys to the kingdom. I'm the one coming in and I have all these grand ideas with technology. That's like, Hey, I love the pen and paper we're using or some older software, but in order for us to get from A to B, we're going to need to put some more robust software in. And I think it's helping everybody within the company understand why there is a need for that and not it coming as, I know more than you do and you know less or it isn't any of that but I've seen those type of dynamics come in of like mm -hmm. I've been running this for 35 years you mm -hmm. you haven't you just you've been here too how can yeah. you think this is the best solution right no that makes a lot of sense so when it comes to overall organizational design like you just checked you just um, touched on what are some of the best practices you've seen for family-run businesses and making sure that they do have an effective organizational hierarchy or just overall roles and responsibilities? A couple of different things that come to mind is one being, let's say when the next generation starts coming in, or even if you have different family members, maybe they've worked at a different job and they want to come in now. I think it's asking are, are you ready to be a part of this business? Because it's going to look different than when you work for Joe Smo over here, nine to five, you punch the card mm -hmm. and you do your thing. You want to be able to treat each member fairly, um, being that, hey, just because you have our last name doesn't mean that you get to come at the top and you start at $300,000 a year. Like, right. what is that going to look like? How, how do they work up the ranks just like everybody else? And how are you going to address underperforming family members? Mm -hmm. That can get tricky as well, you know, it's Joey and we've talked to him and, but he, he's good and we don't want to talk about other things and having a good, good plan in place for how you're going to mitigate those risks helps. So you're not having, I don't know, fallout in different ways. You're not having toxicity built up in the workplace where more family leaves or, you know, there's just different dynamics that come with that. Yeah, certainly a very high vulnerability environment as, you know, poor Joey just got an, 
and uh, performance improvement plan, right? But you have to see them at Thanksgiving the next day. So that can be a little awkward, um, I assume. It, it, it can. And I've had that experience before with family members and then something said and you're like, cool, I'll see you tomorrow night for uh, Christmas Eve dinner. <laughs> Hope, hopefully there's no bad blood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Being able to separate that um, or um, to your point, have a plan around it. Maybe it is, you know, outsourcing to a third party that would have a better idea of how to have that conversation um, or an advisor such as yourself when it comes to an organizational change um, situation. I assume that could be pretty helpful to have that autonomy. Oh yeah, definitely. And I know I have friends that do this and you see them in, in companies that they hire industrial psychologists and they come in and they help mitigate some of those problems that are going on and, and help from an outside perspective. You as the family members, that is, we at times get so honed in on this is the most important thing right here and we can't see all of this out here. And having somebody you know, come in from a different set of eyes to say, hey, let, let's focus over here or let's put together a different plan that helps everybody be, I don't know, just not more efficient is the right word, but creating more harmony within the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can only assume that that is, is really difficult um, in just having that emotional layer um, you know, for example, even from, from my dynamic of, I lead a team here at third stage and have those conversations and do that all the time, but I am truly unable to give our caregivers feedback or anything like that. So my husband has to step into that role just because it's way too emotional for me to be involved in. And I can only imagine from a, a family business dynamic, you have to have that awareness, especially as a leadership of like, hey, it's going to get weird sometimes, you know? Yeah. And to your point, if you show up too emotional about something, it causes secondary problems mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't want that either. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, it's just talking about something so vulnerable as my children, right? I have no problem managing a team, but when it comes to something that's so near and dear to my heart, and I can imagine um, that that's kind of the same thing when it comes to just the lineage within small business, because you have done that for 30, 40 years, and, and you have built it a lot of times from the ground up, Um you know, we see a lot of um, like billionaires now um, not having any inheritance to their their next generation um, just because they want to instill those values of kind of building something for yourself, uh, which I assume can be, you know, tricky within the organizational design of family businesses, too. Oh, yeah. And you can you can see, too, maybe like a good example is maybe we're at generation number four. And number four is like, hey, you know what? We want to sell this. We don't want to do this anymore, but we're not going to consult with Gen 5 mm -hmm. to see if they would even want to purchase it. And oh, having, wow. start yeah. having those types of conversations to be like, hey, we don't want this anymore, but we don't want to give you the opportunity to buy it because we want to get max price for it. And I know you couldn't afford that. And that gets sticky situations too. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, I want to, um, after our break, um, dig into some technology pieces um, and some more business process when it comes to family-owned businesses. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Kyler and Christy talking about digital transformation and technology at family-owned businesses. We'll be right back with Transformation Ground Control.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're in the middle of a conversation here with Kyler and Christy talking about family-owned businesses and more specifically digital transformation and technology at family-owned businesses. Uh, so with that, we'll cut it back to you, Kyler and Christy. So Christy, we, we started off the episode kind of talking about the different dynamics and challenges that can ha- happen just from a human side. And I'm wondering from like a, a technology side, um, again, huge assumption on my part here, but we talk a lot about, especially in this podcast with our colleagues, tribal knowledge. And I can only assume that it's almost like hyper um, a hyper issue in family-owned businesses just because they have built that process and that's kind of what they've run. Um, and so how do you help when you are integrating a new technology, knowing that you're going to have to capture a lot of that tribal knowledge to understand the true needs of the business? It's tricky. <laughs> and, and you see this even in non-family businesses too, is there's a lot of, I own this, I design mm-hmm. this, whether it's a cell worksheet or it's some process and being able to not hand it over, but share the inner workings of how it works with other people. It's almost like, oh, are you going to take this away or do I get to keep this? How how much are we going to modify it? Because I'm really comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it, you want to make sure they aren't losing so much ownership over it. You want to make sure that they still have the value and you're seeing the value in what they're bringing. And that helps create this level of comfortability that they're being seen and they're being heard. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because on our sister podcast, this last episode, um, Eric interviewed um, Dr. Christina Serrano, who's a, um, a professor up at CSU. And she talked about how a lot of times change needs to be within a motivation for the individual. And I would imagine that it's very similar to the situation you're laying out in the fact that there has to be an understanding and a motivation to want to grow the business or, you know, create more efficiencies or whatever the goal is in order to kind of capture that that tribal knowledge in a really vulnerable and uncomfortable situation. It's a totally new process, especially if it's something that you built from scratch. There can be a lot of... Um, you know, emotion and, and pride around that. Yeah. And I, and I see that right now and a client I worked with a little, I guess a couple months ago that there's one guy in there and he built this phenomenal piece of software from the ground up and it works really well. And we're to the point where, Hey, we may have to replace it because it can't do what we need to do to keep up and being able to you know, let, let him down easy and not just be like, well, this was, this is not the right fit anymore, but saying why, like you said, creating that motivation behind why we need to change. And 
I, I think too, there's so much psychology in change that we've mm-hmm. never realized because before kind of this tech revolu- revolution, change didn't happen as frequently. Mm-hmm. And now change happens, oh, sometimes it feels daily, but <laughs> more, it, it happens a lot faster and people, they can adapt to it, but they can't adapt to it. It's probably a That's whole separate conversation about yeah. that, but still. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of a technology revolution, we obviously just had the COVID-19 pandemic, which is still, you know, very much a, a real thing um, for our global audience. So many small businesses, specifically family-owned businesses, really had to adjust to how they did business. And I'm wondering if you can kind of give us an example or talk us through how you helped with integrating new technologies in that dynamic that was just a real forced transformation? The one that I think most people have gone to is e-commerce. If you had a brick and mortar store, you went e-commerce and helping people take a Shopify account integrated in with the software they have. um, That's probably the biggest one that I saw Mm -hmm. happen. And then you also see certain industries that COVID-19 and even just the last two years in general, they've just like grown and they can't keep up with the growth and they have to hire more people because they may not have enough family members that want to be involved with the business. They're going outside and who's going to fit this this culture that we've built up within our company, who's going to help us get it to where we need it to go. And then do we have the money to, to mm-hmm. buy this software and do we have the time to implement it? Because we're so busy right now. And there, there was a client a couple years, well, I guess it started in 20, 2020, the beginning of it, they came in, they're doing about 4 million a year. And when uh, 2020 really started going and we got shut down about March, then they moved to doing 4 million a month. And oh my gosh. That amount of change is crazy. And like, we got to hire people. I, I don't have certain people that can cross hats that their expertise is only here. It can't go here. Where do, where do I find people and kind of help and walk them through that process. And it was really cool to see. And then you see people on the other side of it. We had a client that did an implementation during 2020 and their family owned business. And going back to what you said about just motivation, they had so much motivation to get this implemented and get it up and running because they needed to be able to keep up with demand also that they were able to get it done under what the vendor had even said the amount of time and way under budget because they were so focused on keeping it their number one priority. Wow. That's great. That's, I mean, that's a a really impressive thing to do. Um, Just showcases, again, the overall just drive behind a a business that is a huge piece of your identity as a person. And we say that even people that don't work at family businesses, you know, they can eat, sleep and breathe an industry. Um, I wanted to ask you when we had this conversation, is, is there any specific software that is better for a family run business than another? I don't, I think what would determine it is what industry are you in? Hmm. You would, there's certain industries that, Hey, maybe you're really good at distribution. There's certain softwares that their specialties distribution. There's other ones that manufacturing is really where their strong point is. So even if we're talking about the big ERPs like NetSuite and N4 IFS, all of those, you look at like an N4 and IFS, 
QAD, handful of those, manufacturing is something they're really, really good at. Where NetSuite is good at it, but you would look at those and be like, yes, I would start wanting to narrow it down to this specialty. NetSuite is really good for e-commerce stuff. Microsoft is great for e-commerce. And so you may lean a little bit more that way if you're looking to connect those. And then there's a handful of other softwares, you know, all in, but I know people can resonate with some of the big names. And if you were to give one piece of advice for a family-owned business that's really trying to grow, what would that be? Gosh, how would... Um... You can pick two pieces. Okay. I'll, I was like, I may have to pick two. <laughs> I'll permit it. Okay. Just once though. <laughs> um, I think that to, if you're ready to really grow is having a strategy in what is that growth going to look like? I think small businesses and family business in general, they can get hung up on well, we've always done it this way. It's been very, very successful for us why would we want to change to be able to scale and not letting that stop you from getting to where you need to go that may mean hey we need to bring in a non-family member for a board of directors we may need to hide and hire an outsider that has a different lens to see what we need to do because at the end of the day some family member or even who's running the company may not have that skill set to get it to where it needs to go. And you may have to rely on somebody else to help you get there. Absolutely. And then the last one I always say is every, every family business needs to have an exit strategy. And whether that's you're selling it, whether you're handing it off, you're merging, whatever that looks like, because that helps you scale. You know that, hey, our exit strategy is maybe we get to 50 million and, and we're gonna sell it. And you're at 30 million today you get some parameters or you have a number in mind that, hey, if somebody approaches me, yep, this is the number I would sell it at. And they're, they're just good things to have in mind because you may not be able to keep your company forever. You may get tired of it. Um, the next generation may not want to come in and take it over. And it's just good planning. All right. Thank you, Kyler and Christy. Great conversation. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss some of the findings and takeaways from that discussion about family-owned businesses and transformations at a family-owned business when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 61. And we just finished the discussion with uh, you, Kyler, and Christy talking about family-owned businesses. What were some of your takeaways from that discussion? 
Well, I had no idea the variety of family-owned businesses out there um, and just the logistics behind them because I always assumed, you know, a, a small mom-and-pop shop. And, and some family-owned businesses are huge. You know, like Merrill Lynch, for example, they were family-owned for a very long time. And um, even when they were, a, a, you know, in the Fortune 200 category. So there can be a lot of dynamics that that come into play there. Um, and just the organizational change skills. That's why Christie's always so impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's also a bit more personal, you know, when you're dealing with family business, because especially if you're, especially if you're second, third or fourth generation or beyond, um, you're, it, the mindset is a little bit different and more, more personal in that you're, it's almost like a, sometimes a defensive uh, mindset of I don't want to screw up what my dad built or what my grandmother built or wh whoever it was. And so there's a, and, and there's more pride in ownership, I guess you'd say, than, than it, and oftentimes a typical business owner or executive. Um, so I think that's another dynamic that oftentimes is at play too. Another place where she is featured is in our uh, past digital stratosphere event and our most recent one you can uh, view by going to stratosphere2022.com and of course we also have a digital stratosphere podcast a sister podcast of this one which is more uh you know 15 to 30 minute bite-sized chunks of content that we put out i think three episodes every week uh, whereas this podcast is more of a long form weekly episode um, so depending on what your preference is you you may or may not like that format uh as well. So be sure to check that out. You can subscribe in all the same places that you, you find this podcast too. So um, it's good stuff. So thanks for having that discussion with Christy and thanks to uh, Christy, Brian, Teresa uh, for being on the show. And thank you as always, Kyler, for co-hosting with me. Um, and we look forward to our next uh, podcast next week. You can find us every Wednesday with new episodes. And thank you most importantly to the audience for listening here today. Be sure to share this podcast and Get the word out. Anyone you think that might benefit from some of the stuff we share here, we'd love to have you share it with others. So thank you for that. And uh, hope you all have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control.